0: Happy Saturday, everybody. Today's classic is a little bit newer than the ones that we have shared on previous Saturdays. It is our April 2016 episode on the Easter Rising.
1: And we have a new episode coming up next week that's focused on one of the figures from the Rising. And because there are several other major events to talk about in that upcoming episode, we didn't want to spend too much time recapping something that we've covered before. But we also did not want new listeners to miss out on that part of the story.
0: So enjoy! Enjoy! Welcome to Stuff You
1: Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy B. Wilson and I'm Holly Fry. The 100th anniversary of Ireland's 1916 Easter Rising is really just around the corner. So consequently, we have been getting periodic requests to talk about it for about the last year. Today, this is considered to be one of the most pivotal moments in modern Irish history, and it was the precursor to a number of events that have happened since then, both within and outside of Ireland. But at the same time, it's an event that was and continues to be really full of contradictions. There were a lot of different organizations that were involved in planning the Easter Rising and carrying it out And each group had its own perspectives and goals, and the people within each group did too, and a lot of times these contradicted each other. Although what happened is pretty well established, there's still significant disagreement about what it meant and whether it was justified, and depending on who is doing the talking, it was either a much-needed anti-colonial revolt that directly led to Ireland's independence or... It was an unasked-for violent overthrow of a democratically elected government. So, wildly diverging perspectives on what it was all about. Even though it happened a century ago, so you might think things were a little more settled about understanding it today, uh, a lot of papers related to it were only released by Ireland's Bureau of Military History in 2003, after the last of the survivors had died the Irish government actually established the Bureau of Military History in 1947 to document the perspectives of the people who had been involved in revolutionary activities between 1913 and 1921. This is the biggest collection of written accounts from the Republican point of view that exists. And so basically decades passed between when the events happened and when a lot of these documentation Uh, Or a lot of these individual testimonies were written down, and then once they were released to historians to review, which only happened comparatively recently, all the people whose memories were documented there had passed away. All this together means that today's podcast cannot possibly touch on every motivation and every interpretation for the Easter Rising, or even everything that happened during Easter week 1916. It also means that the written history of the Easter Rising and people's perspectives on its significance and its impact will definitely continue to evolve long after this podcast is over. So today is really an overview of the basics and some of the ways that people interpret the Easter Rising today.
1: Conflicts between England and Ireland about how Ireland should be ruled and by whom go back for centuries. As we've talked about on the show before, the Normans invaded what is now England in the Battle of Hastings in 1066. And then about a 100 years later, Anglo-Normans went on to invade Ireland, with Henry II arriving there in 1171. In 1541, Henry VIII was declared king of Ireland. The Irish Parliament was formally abolished in eighteen o one when the nation became part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland under the Act of Union. At that point, Ireland's MPs and peers became part of the UK Parliament rather than Ireland having a Parliament of its own. So
0: throughout all of these centuries, a wide range of laws and policies were put into place that restricted the Irish population in various ways particularly related to religious freedoms. Most, but not all, of the people in Ireland were and continue to be Catholic. Just as examples, in the early 17th century, King James I sent Protestant farmers to Ireland specifically to take over farmland that was owned by Catholics. Laws that forbade Catholics from voting, owning land, or practicing their religion were passed in 1692. When a potato blight struck Ireland in 1845, which we've talked about in a previous two-parter on the show... The British government's response was basically to do nothing, which led to about a million deaths and a massive wave of emigration from Ireland to other nations, including the United States.
1: So unsurprisingly, there has also been resistance to English rule of Ireland during those same centuries through both violent and nonviolent means. And often these conflicts have had multiple sides, with some of the Irish population supporting the idea of self-governance or independence and others supporting the idea of remaining as part of the United Kingdom. And these conflicts have had both political and religious roots, which have often been deeply interconnected.
0: Throughout the history of English presence in Ireland, more moderate groups and political parties have basically tried to work within the system through things like petitions and demonstrations and getting nationalist representatives elected to parliament. At the same time, more radical groups have led numerous armed uprisings. And whether they were violent or nonviolent, all of these movements and uprisings and rebellions have all had their own leaders and their own ideologies and their own tipping points. But at a very basic level, they were all about Ireland resisting British rule or British laws and practices that Irish people found to be unjust or
1: discriminatory. In the 1870s, Isaac Butt established the Home Government Association, which called for Home Rule. Basically, Ireland remaining part of the United Kingdom while also governing itself through its own parliament, which would convene in Ireland rather than England. Through the late 1800s and into the early 1900s, multiple Home Rule bills were introduced in Parliament, but they ultimately failed.
0: Then, finally, after two years of debate, the Government of Ireland Act of 1914 was given royal assent on September 18th of that year. This act was intended to establish Home Rule in Ireland. But on the same day, the Suspensary Act of 1914 was also passed. Which effectively delayed the Government of Ireland Act along with the Welsh Church Act of 1914, which we're not really talking about today, from going into effect for a year. This was because of World War I, which was going on at the time.
1: This situation made a lot of people with widely diverging ideologies extremely angry. The Government of Ireland Act itself infuriated the most radical unionists, that is, the people who wanted Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom, because it would allow for a separate parliament for Ireland. Many, but not all of these, were Protestants living in the northern part of Ireland. It simultaneously infuriated the most radical republicans, that is, the people who wanted Ireland to be completely independent from the United Kingdom because under the act Ireland would continue to be part of the UK.
0: Along with other organisations that had been formed for and against the idea of home rule while this act was being debated, militias had formed as well. There was the Ulster Volunteers. These were on the unionist side, mostly in the northern part of Ireland. And then there were the Irish Volunteers on the nationalist side. They were basically, the Irish Volunteers were formed kind of in response to the existence of the Ulster Volunteers. Then there was the Irish Citizen Army, which was originally formed to protect protesters from police during a labor dispute, which had evolved into a nationalist organization as well.
1: People whose opinions were more moderate were generally in favor of Home Rule. It was a sort of compromise between being independent and remaining part of the UK. And a lot of them agreed that the middle of a war wasn't the right time to go about separating Ireland's government from the UK Parliament. But the year-long delay brought about by the Suspensory Act did lead some supporters of Home Rule to fear that by the time that year was up or the war was over, something would happen to derail it entirely.
0: I should also point out that there are pretty moderate Protestants living in the mostly in the northern part of Ireland who were not in favor of home rule because they were afraid that if home rule were implemented, that their needs would be outweighed by the majority Catholic vote. Uh, And that that wasn't as much of a threat um, as with everyone being part of the UK parliament rather than having a separate parliament for Ireland. The people who planned and executed the Easter Rising were against home rule. They were all Republicans who wanted Ireland to be completely independent from the United Kingdom. We'll talk about who they were and what they planned to do after a brief word from a sponsor.
1: Getting back to the story, a huge number of people and organizations were involved in the 1916 Easter Rising. The Irish Volunteers and Irish Citizen Army, as mentioned before the break, were both involved, as was the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which went by IRB, who we discussed in our podcast on the Catalpa. na Naman was a women's militia formed in response to the fact that the Irish Volunteers were all male. A nationalist youth organization called Nafina Aran was involved as well, along with many other smaller organizations. In terms of the participants, the largest numbers of
0: actual people were from the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizen Army. But in terms of leadership, the people who were in the most powerful positions, who did the most strategic planning, were from the Irish Republican Brotherhood, who were also known as the Fenians. This has since then evolved into a slur often used against Irish people. A lot of the first pieces of the planning and organization started with uh, IRB members Thomas Clark and Sean McDermida.
1: Essentially, with the start of World War I, Thomas Clark and other militant nationalists in the IRB saw an opportunity. Within just a couple of weeks of Britain's entry into the war on August 5th of 1914, the IRB had decided to pursue the idea of an open rebellion before the end of the war. The government was focused on the war and not on Ireland.
0: Plus, the war had led to a schism within the Irish Volunteers, with many of them volunteering to fight following the encouragement of Irish Revolutionary Party leader John Redmond. The ones who were left were primarily the organization's most radical members, who were against both Irish involvement in the war and home rule. Consequently, the IRB was able to place some of its most radical members into leadership roles within the Irish Volunteers, Soon, Padraig Pierce, whose name is often anglicized to Patrick, Joseph Plunkett, Eamon Kant, and Thomas McDonough had all been placed into positions that were directing the organization's military training and communications functions.
1: While planning the rising, they turned to Germany for support, with Roger Casement, subject of a previous podcast that uh, previous hosts Sarah and Dublina worked on, trying to secure weapons, ammunition, officers, and an army of volunteers recruited from Irish POWs being held in Germany. Neither of these efforts was successful. Few of the POWs wanted to volunteer, and the largest weapon shipment was intercepted on its way to Ireland.
0: A couple of side notes here. Casement ultimately realized that the Rising was not likely to succeed, and he tried to return to Ireland to discourage it, but he arrived too late, and he was captured and charged with treason. There's a lot more detail about that in this episode from the archive, which we'll link to in our show notes. Also, Germany basically wound up providing weapons to both the Irish volunteers and the Ulster volunteers, basically opposite sides of the Home Rule versus Not Home Rule uh, disagreement. In part because Germany was really hoping to turn World War I into a, a two-front war with Britain being distracted by fighting in Ireland and unable to focus on what was happening uh, on
1: the continent. By May of 1915, the IRB had established a military council specifically for planning a rebellion. They conducted their planning in total secrecy. They had to avoid being caught by Irish authorities as well as by the more moderate members of all the organizations that were ultimately involved in the rising. This was difficult since one of the things they needed to do was to prepare the Irish volunteers on the Irish Citizen Army to fight in the rebellion without tipping their hands that they were planning one.
0: Eventually, they settled on Easter Sunday, nineteen sixteen, and planned a nationwide uprising. The date was cho- was chosen deliberately. The Irish volunteers had conducted some pretty large exercises on St. Patrick's Day that year, as well as on Easter the year before. So they were hoping that this precedent would make it seem like this mobilization was just a recognition of the day and not something more violent.
1: However, about a week before Easter, Bulver Hobson, who was the IRB's Quartermaster General, and Owen McNeil, Chief of Staff of the Irish Volunteers, Heard about the uprising that was being planned, and they confronted Patrick Pierce about it. McNeil published an order in the Irish Sunday Independent on Easter Sunday, commanding that the rising not go forward. Another hiccup was that the weapon shipment promised from Germany had not arrived on Good Friday as expected.
0: That was the one that had been, uh, that had been intercepted on the way. Finally, the decision was made to go ahead with the Rising in spite of these obstacles, but it was moved to Easter Monday, and the focus was primarily Dublin. There were some other smaller things outside of Dublin, but Dublin became the primary focus. On Monday, April 24th, members of the Irish Volunteers, led by Patrick Pearce, and the Irish Citizen Army, led by James Connolly, along with members of of Cunamon, met at prearranged places at about 11 in the morning. Just after noon, they took multiple locations around Dublin, including the General Post Office and Boland's Mills, as
1: well as laying siege to Dublin Castle. The rebels established a headquarters at the General Post Office, and the mBan set up a field hospital there as well. The GPO was also the location of the provisional government. From the steps of the GPO, Pierce read the proclamation of an Irish Republic, which he had drafted and which was signed by seven men, Eamon Cant. Thomas James Clark, James Connolly, Sean McDermott, Thomas McDonough, Patrick Pierce, and Joseph Mary Plunkett.
0: It began, Irishmen and Irish women, in the name of God and of the dead generations from which she receives her old traditions of nationhood,
1: Ireland, through us, summons her children to her flag and strikes for her freedom. It goes on to declare Ireland a sovereign nation and, quote, guarantees religious and civil liberty, equal rights and equal opportunities to all its citizens and declares its resolve to pursue the happiness and prosperity of the whole nation and of all its parts, cherishing all of the children of the nation equally and oblivious of the differences carefully fostered by an alien government, which have divided a minority from the majority in the past.
0: It ends by establishing a provisional government and
1: placing the Irish Republic under the protection of the Most High God. We're going to talk about how the Rising played out and what happened in its aftermath. But first, we're going to pause once again for a word from one of our fantastic sponsors.
0: fatalities in the first few hours of the Easter Rising. But the uprising had caught the British mostly by surprise. That changed, however, once Britain actually had time to react to what was going on. Britain declared martial law, and because Republican forces hadn't been able to take control of the railroad stations or the docks, British troops were able to make their way to Dublin really easily.
1: British troops who were already in Ireland were in Dublin by Monday afternoon, and more troops arrived from England on Tuesday. Soon, about 1,600 rebels were facing off against about 20,000 British soldiers. Street fighting was extensive, and the rebel-held locations that didn't fall right away wound up mostly being besieged for the remainder of the week. Britain had greater numbers and better weapons and didn't really hesitate to use heavy artillery. This led to extensive damage and a number of fires.
0: On Friday night, a fire forced the rebels who were in the GPO to have to flee. Patrick Pierce unconditionally surrendered the next day with the hope of preventing more loss of life with his surrender reading, quote, in order to prevent further slaughter of the civil population and in the hope of saving the lives of our followers, the members of the provisional government present at headquarters have decided on an unconditional surrender and commandants or officers
1: commanding districts will order their commands to lay down arms. By that point, though, the death toll was already significant. 62 rebels died, and from the British troops, 106 were killed and 334 were wounded. Hardest hit were civilians caught in the crossfire, with 256 deaths and thousands of injuries. At first, in the immediate aftermath of the Rising,
0: both Republicans and Unionists were outraged at the Rising's leaders, not at Britain. A lot of people felt like this was a violent uprising that had attempted to overthrow a democratically elected government and replace it with people who had basically appointed themselves to the job rather than being elected. When Irish Parliamentary Party MP John Dillon expressed his disapproval of the rebels, but then followed it with a statement that they had, quote, fought a clean fight and they fought with superb bravery and skill and no act of savagery or act of the usual customs of war, end quote, in the House of Commons, people yelled shame at him. So, Like, even though he said pretty directly that he disapproved of what they had done, but that they had fought bravely, people were angry enough about it that they yelled shame at him on the uh, on the floor of Parliament.
1: Perception shifted, however, after Britain began court-martialing and executing the leaders of the rising, including some whose roles had really been quite minor and imprisoning more people than had even participated between May 3rd and May 12th, all seven people who had signed the Proclamation of the Irish Republic were executed, along with nine others, for a total of 16. These included Roger Casement and William Pierce, who was Patrick Pierce's younger brother. And all of those executed were buried in a quicklime with no funeral.
0: Only one woman was court-martialed, although there were many others who were involved, and that one woman was Constance Markievicz. She was known as the Larkinite Rebel Countess, and when she surrendered, she was reported to have kissed her revolver before handing it over. She was one of the people who had helped found Nafina Aaron, and during the rising, she was second in command to Michael Mullen, who was one of the leaders who was executed. She was sentenced to death as well, although it was commuted to life in prison because of her sex, and she was later released under a a general amnesty. From there, she became the first woman elected to the British Parliament, although she and other members of Sinn Féin refused to take her seat after she had been elected. I realized how awesome she was very late in the process of this, (laughs) and I kind of wish the whole episode had been about her, because she's fascinating, and maybe we will do that later. I also, coincidentally, like, I emailed you the outline for this episode, and then I checked the inbox... (laughs) And we had an email from a listener saying that exact thing. Like, (laughs) you could do something about the Easter Rising, but this is really who you should focus
1: on. Maybe next year for Easter Rising's anniversary that will not be a hundred. Executing the rebellion's leaders and imprisoning many others had the opposite effect of Britain's intentions. It did not discourage further rebellion or nationalist sentiment. Instead, this was when Republican sentiment, which had existed in Ireland for as long as Britain had been present there, to really start to pick up steam.
0: Thanks to the IRB's secrecy in planning the rising, for a time, authorities actually thought it had been the work of Sinn Fein. Even though this was not correct, Sinn Féin benefited really enormously from the error. It it reorganized in the wake of the rising and became much more powerful, ultimately replacing the more moderate Irish parliamentary party in Parliament in the next general election.
1: This victory ultimately led to the Irish War of Independence from 1919 to 1921, after which the six northeastern counties which did not want to leave the United Kingdom were partitioned into Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland became the Irish Free State and then the Republic of Ireland.
0: And this is really why people point to the Easter Rising as being this extremely important formative moment in the history of of the uh in the history of the Republic of Ireland like it it, it wasn't the thing that, like, it, it wasn't quite the same as, say, the Revolutionary War in the Americas. There was a whole other conflict that followed this one. But this was sort of the turning point uh, of a lot of Republican sentiment. Like, a lot of people who had been a lot more moderate and said, well, it will be fine if we just have home rule, if we can rule ourselves but be part of the UK still. Like, that, it was really the thing that turned a lot of that opinion to be, no, we need to be completely independent, from the UK. Um, so it was a galvanizing moment uh, in in terms of Republican sentiment in Ireland. And then in the years that have passed since then, the Easter Rising has been cited as the inspiration for other a lot of other events, including the Russian Revolution and then the Troubles in Northern Ireland, which... Uh, for folks who don't personally remember it, which I think a lot of us do, <laughs> a lot of us were alive at the either through all of it or at the end of the troubles. So a decades-long conflict between Northern Ireland's Unionist Protestants and Republican Catholics. At an extremely basic level, uh, law enforcement in Northern Ireland have actually expressed some concerns that the centennial of the, Eastern rising, of the Easter Rising may lead to violent protests in Northern Ireland from the folks who would have preferred to have become independent with the remainder of Ireland as well. And that's the scoop. That is the basics of the Easter Rising. I'm not kidding. There is so much more that we could talk about. Like, there, the one of the books that, uh, that I got for this is one of the ones there. There are several books that have come out after that release of documents that we talked about at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, that generally have a, a that have made a lot of use of those particular documents, um, and one of them is quite long. Uh, we will they will all be in the show notes if you are interested in learning more. Um, there is all kinds so much more stuff to actually that we could actually get into, but this is a thirty minute podcast, so, so we are not. <laughs>